Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? You all good? Hey, I'm glad you're here with us today. If you're a guest, I'm especially glad that you've joined us. And uh, just so that you know uh, what we're doing, we are in this series for this month called uh, On the Move. Uh, it's a series in which we're trying to um, kind of gain a broader perspective on what God is doing all around the world. And we're doing that by highlighting a few ministries that we know uh, are striving to both proclaim and demonstrate the, uh, the goodness of Jesus in various ways to various people in various contexts. Now, in case you weren't aware of this, today is National Refugee Sunday, and it's a day when we recognize how of the many crises that are you know, impacting uh, our world right now, the greatest may be the, the displacement of over 65 million uh, people uh, due to war, persecution, conflict, and or violence. And as a church, we believe it is our God-given responsibility to do whatever we can to ease the suffering uh, of so many. And I want you to keep in mind what God said to his people in the Old Testament. And I want you to realize, I'm not just quoting this verse out of convenience. Listen to what God says to his people. In the Old Testament, he told them this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. They must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself. I am the Lord your God. Love them as you love yourself. In the New Testament, with identical language, Jesus said to his followers, love your neighbor as you love yourself. As followers of Jesus and as a church, we're pretty serious about doing this very thing, loving our neighbor, loving the stranger among us, loving the immigrant, loving the, the refugee among us. I mean, it's the heartbeat of the gospel of Jesus, who himself was a refugee. Now, that said, this morning we want to highlight the Ministry of World Relief, an organization uh, that is working to empower the local church all around the globe to love and serve the, the most vulnerable, and uh, here to help us better understand the crisis and what we can do to make a difference is World Relief's Vice President of Advocacy and Policy, co-author of the book, Welcoming the Stranger, Mrs. Jenny Yang, would you welcome her with me? Well, it was really uh, such a pleasure for me to be here. And before I start talking about what's happening around the world and right here, in, even in our own community, I have to tell you about the story of my father and my, my mother, actually. So I was born and raised in Philadelphia, PA, the daughter of two immigrants. And my father, um, both my parents actually were born in South Korea at a time of extreme poverty and conflict. In fact, my father was born in South Korea at a time um, when the Korean War was actually just beginning. And his father, so my grandfather, was a newspaper reporter. Now, in the beginning of the Korean War, the communists, the first people they were targeting during the war were media personnel. So my father, when he was just three-year-old, um, he's a little boy in the white hat that you see in that picture there. He remembers uh, hearing a knock at the door when he was just three. And the soldiers had come into his house looking for my grandfather because they knew he was a reporter. Now, they actually pushed my father aside, went looking for my grandfather, uh, found my grandfather upstairs in the house, pulled him out, and my father, at the age of three, never saw his father again. And he was just three years old. 
Now, my father lived with his mother, and his mother actually became a Christian through American missionaries that were going to Korea in droves at that time. And through my grandmother's faith, uh, my father and my grandmother both prayed fervently throughout that time that God would provide for them and give them what they needed, even as a widow, uh, without actually having a job and being um, and some kind of sustenance in South Korea at that time. But just at the age of seven, my, my grandmother got really, really sick, and so she actually passed away. So my father became orphaned at the age of seven in desperately poor Korea at that time. Now, my father didn't have any siblings with him, and he ended up living with an uncle who didn't really treat him so well. And so the one thing that he prayed for with this faith that his grandma, my grandmother had given him was that he would somehow be able to leave Korea, which was extremely poor and conflict-ridden at that time, to go to another place like the United States of America. Because he had heard that this country is literally a country where the streets were paved with gold. And so for years, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed that he would somehow be able to come to this country. He just didn't know how he was going to make it here. Now, the one thing he became really good at was fixing cars. And so he actually entered a national car repair competition, won first place, and actually one of the judges noticed him and said, hey, do you want to come to the United States of America with me? And my dad jumped at the chance. So he actually applied for a job with a Ford Motor Company, got a visa, and that was his golden ticket to come to the United States of America. And he started working for Ford um, in downtown Philadelphia, and he ended up opening up his own mechanic shop in downtown Philly. So I always tell people, if you're ever in Philly and you, your car breaks down, to call my dad, because he'll know exactly what to do. Um, but this picture that you see of my father with a white hat, the one that you just saw, is the only picture that my father has of himself as a young child. And it's such a stark contrast to the over 12,000 pictures I have on my iPhone of my two-year-old son. And so whenever I see this picture, I'm always reminded of the fact, not only of the poverty and the significant loss and suffering that my dad encountered, but how that is actually a reality for thousands, in fact, millions of people across the planet today. Now, my father's story is pretty unique in what he personally experienced and the significant hardship that he had to face in Korea. But right now, we are facing the world's worst displacement crisis since World War II. In fact, we are facing a significant number of people, over 60 million people, who have been forcibly uh, forced to flee from their homes and go to another place in order to find safety from the persecution and conflict that they've suffered. And the numbers are so great that if they were to become a country, the 60 million, they would actually outnumber the entire population of the United Kingdom or of Canada and Australia combined. And so we're talking about significant numbers of those who are displaced. Now, when we look at what's happening around the world, it can be extremely overwhelming. We see what's happening in Asia and in Africa and in parts of the Middle East, and it is completely overwhelming. And so as we look at the conflict and where all these crises are happening around the world, we have to understand that many of these conflicts that are happening are happening and impacting real people in their own individual lives. And many of these refugees never wanted to become refugees in the first place. In fact, a few years ago when I went to Jordan, which is actually hosting a large number of refugees, I actually met refugees who still had the keys to their homes because they felt like they were going to eventually be able to go back to their homes and not be a refugee and go back to Syria and actually go back to their homes even though they were bombed out. They still held the keys to their homes. Now, many of these refugees I've encountered are sharing their stories and telling about the resilience of their stories to reporters and people who will listen to them. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Zatari Refugee Camp, which is in the middle of Jordan, 
where they're actually hosting millions of refugees right there in their own community. Now, Jordan is actually hosting about almost 20% of their population is made up of refugees. Now, imagine hearing the United States of America, if Canada erupted into civil war, which we know it's unlikely, but imagine if they erupted into civil war, and there was significant conflict in parts of Mexico, and let's say the entire population of Canada and a third of the population of Mexico were to empty itself into the United States within a span of five years. That's exactly what Jordan is going through. Now, imagine in your head, what would our, be, what would our response be to Canadians and to Mexicans that were fleeing a civil war and that were coming into our communities? What will we here do as Americans? Well, in Jordan, what they decided to do is they actually opened up their schools so a lot of the student children are able to attend school. And they also opened up their hospitals so a lot of the refugees are able to receive urgent medical care for whatever they need. And what's interesting about the Syrian conflict specifically is that about eight years ago, before the Syrian civil war, Syria used to be the country that hosted a large number of refugees. In fact, they were the second largest refugee hosting country in the world, which means that they were so stable that Iranians and Iraqi refugees that were fleeing conflict would flee into Syria in order to seek safety. But when the Syrian conflict happened, Syria has now reversed, and now they're actually the country that produces the world's largest number of refugees. But even as we talk about the numbers, and even as we talk about the millions who have been forced to flee from their homes, it's actually important to talk about the one, about the one individual and their individual stories and what life is like for them as a refugee. Now, one person I want to talk to you about is Abdul Rahman Ahmed, and he is 104 years old, even though he doesn't look a year over 70, I would say. But when you look at him, he said he hasn't had teeth for 34 years because his wife kissed them out with all of her kisses. And so he shares about what life was like in Syria. He was a farmer. He farmed lentils and chickpeas and watermelon. And he said he lived for over 100 years, nearly 100 years in Syria through the Ottoman Empire, through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, through the Iraqi wars, through the Iranian revolution. And he never felt the need to leave his home. But it wasn't until the start of the Syrian war that he felt really insecure and unsafe, and he fled with his many grandchildren and great-grandchildren into Turkey, actually, where he um, was sharing a story. And imagine being confined to a wheelchair, having to wheel yourself and your entire family across a border into a place where you're now living in a 6 by 10 tent in the middle of nowhere. Now, as he smokes a cigarette, he actually tells us that he uh, wants to eventually go back, but it's likely that he'll probably die in a place that he's never called home. But his hope is for his children and his great-grandchildren to be able to return back to Syria to a place that he's always called home. Now, another Syrian refugee that I want to talk to you about is Huda Kalaf. Now, she is a 34-year-old Syrian refugee that was found in Jordan with her three children. But back in Syria, she actually remembers pleading with her husband not to go out and fight. And her husband was so adamant that he wanted to go out and fight because the government forces were attacking their village that the night that he went out with arms and was fighting against the government soldiers is when the soldiers um, shot a bullet through his heart and he died right there in the streets of their local village. Now, Huda's husband's family knew that the soldiers knew that it was Huda's husband that was fighting them. So her husband's family went to Huda and said, that evening, you have to flee because the government forces know that it was your husband and they're going to come after you. So she took her three children and she actually went on the back of truck convoys and cars and she was able to cross into Jordan where they actually became refugees. Now, consider her story. 
Her children almost became orphaned because they lost their father. She became a widow overnight at the loss of her husband, and they became refugees overnight. And they fit the three categories of vulnerability that we hear about, talked about in the Bible constantly. Widows, orphans, and refugees. And she and her family became all three of them within that night as they became refugees seeking safety. Now, most of the refugees that we hear about <clears throat> in the news are actually going to go into places like Jordan and, and places like Kenya and Thailand where they host significant number of refugees. And it's actually estimated that most refugees will live in a refugee camp on average for 17 years. And they will never come to a place like Europe or the United States of America. But this issue of refugees has become a topic of conversation within our country because the United States resettles less than half of 1% of the world's refugees. And in fact, we at World Relief have partnered with churches like, like Parkview and others to welcome them into our local communities because we know that these refugees that are coming to the United States are some of the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. And we know that these are individuals with the help of the local church who can actually sustain themselves and rebuild their lives in the country that they now call home. And again, this is such a small number of refugees that we're hosting, um, and it's a stark comparison to the millions that are actually living in Jordan and other places that will eventually live there and um, go back to their home communities. And so as we've worked with churches and reached out to, to uh, Christians and others to have a conversation about refugees, what was really striking to us years ago was that there was you know, a lot of resistance and even a lot of misinformation about who these refugees were. But I believe we as a church have a deeper responsibility, not just to know the facts and the numbers, but to actually look at the Bible and to start asking questions, well, what does the Bible have to say about the issue of immigration and migration and about refugees, and how do we as a church community respond? Now, I told you a little bit about my personal story of growing up in, in Philadelphia, PA, and I belong to a Korean Presbyterian church where, you know, we had Bible studies, and I read the Bible through and through. But I didn't realize until a few years ago when I started reading the Bible through a new lens how much immigration is a core part of the story of the gospel. In fact, when you read from Genesis to Revelation, the entire story of the Bible is a story about people who are constantly on the move. In fact, almost every single biblical character in the Bible was an immigrant or a refugee at one point or another. And the reason for that is because God used the movement of people to actually accomplish his purposes throughout scriptures. Now, just one example of this is Abraham. He's the first immigrant I can actually think of in the Bible because God commanded Abraham to leave everything that was comfortable to him and to go to another land that God would show him. Now, Abraham didn't know where he was going, and he probably felt really scared to leave everything behind. But he knew that in migrating and leaving his home, that that was going to be a testament to God's faithfulness to him. And Abraham obeyed and left everything he knew behind and actually went to the place that God demonstrated to him. And it was in that movement, in that loss, that God actually demonstrated his faithfulness to Abraham at that time. We also see in the story of Ruth, she was a Moabite woman who was an immigrant worker who followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, into the gleaning fields of, of the land. And she was a migrant worker gleaning the fields, gleaning the fields when Boaz noticed her. Now, Boaz noticed her as an immigrant, as someone who was widowed, and as someone whose character was so virtuous that he ended up wanting to marry this woman who was different than him, but whom he fell in love with anyways. And so that is a true love story of Boaz and Ruth that we see in scriptures. But her migrant experience was a core part of their love story. 
But we also see in the story of Joseph, he is someone that we can consider a biblical victim of human trafficking because he was sold into slavery by his brothers and he was literally put into, uh, migrated from one place to another as a slave. And it was actually as an immigrant that Pharaoh noticed him and said, hey, even though you're an immigrant, you can actually be a blessing to my nation. And so he placed him in the highest positions of power. And as an immigrant, he was able to bless the people of Egypt at that time and even Pharaoh himself by predicting things and interpreting dreams as we know in the story of Joseph. But perhaps the greatest immigrant of all in scripture is Jesus himself. We all are going to be celebrating Christmas in a few months, and we know this, the nativity scene where we have the three wise men and we have the animals, and we know that Jesus is wrapped in a baby in the manger. But what we don't talk about oftentimes at Christmas is the story of, of the fact that Mary and Joseph had to literally flee into Egypt in order to save Jesus' life right after he was born. That fleeing and that leaving of everything behind and that seeking of safety is a core part of the story of Jesus and the Christmas story, even though it's something that we don't oftentimes talk about. Now, Jesus himself was a young male who was living in the Middle East. And so if we are followers of Jesus, we have to remember that we're ultimately followers of a Middle Eastern refugee, that Jesus himself embodied everything even that we're seeing in the refugee crisis today. Now, this idea of migration and a biblical command and concern for immigrants is not just reflected in individual stories of people throughout the Bible, but what we see is that the word for immigrant, or G-E-R, is actually mentioned 92 times in the Old Testament alone. And what you see is that this word for immigrant, or ger, is actually mentioned along with the widows and orphans um, as people who are particularly vulnerable. And so what we see in verses like uh, Deuteronomy 10.18 is that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien giving him food and clothing. Or it says in Psalm 146, that the Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Or in Malachi 3.5, I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. And you see this commandment throughout the Old Testament that God has a particular concern for widows, orphans, and immigrants because he knew that these were particular groups of people who didn't have a community or family or even a spouse to be able to provide for them and the things that they needed. But this idea of hospitality and of welcome is not just confined to the Old Testament, but you see this theme throughout the New Testament as well and the idea of philoxenia, which literally means a love of the stranger. The opposite of philoxenia is actually xenophobia or a fear of the stranger. And this idea of Christian hospitality is reflected in Hebrews 13:2, in which they say to do not forget enter, to entertain strangers, for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, we are encountering or entering into Thanksgiving season in which we're going to have this amazing turkey spread, right? And I think in the Midwest, you have fried cheese curds and all these really wonderful things. And I think for many of us, this is a, an amazing time to share um, community and, and the blessings of God with one another. But this verse of welcoming the stranger, of philozenia, of loving the stranger, uh, challenges us to go beyond American hospitality to a biblical hospitality. And what that means is it's not just inviting our friends and our family over to the table, but to actually invite strangers and even enemies to the table, to commune with them, to learn from them, to challenge them, and to be formed together as a community of God. 
Now, we know the Great Commission calls us to make disciples of all nations. And we, for years in the church, have sent missionaries overseas to share the good news with people who may not have heard it before. But we also know in Matthew 22 that it says that Jesus commands us to love your neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, this idea of the Great Commission of reaching the nations for Christ and of loving our neighbors of uh, the Great Commandment can be merged together by us loving our immigrant neighbors. Because if we are to love and serve our immigrant neighbors, I believe we are not able to, able to experience miracles in those relationships, but that we actually can reach the nations without ever leaving our own backyards. In fact, we at World Relief did a mapping exercise and we determined where the refugees were coming from and what nationalities that were, they were representing. And what we found is that the nations that refugees are actually coming from right here in our own community of Glen Ellen actually are coming from areas in which the church is really limited or in which the gospel is really incre increasingly difficult for it to thrive. So places like Iraq and Somalia and Afghanistan and Syria are places where there's a really limited presence of the church. But many of these individuals that are experiencing conflict in these areas are now coming into the United States of America, and many of them are encountering Christians and even the church for the very, very first time. This is an incredible missional opportunity for the church, again, to reach the nations for Christ without ever having to leave our own backyards. Right here in Glen Ellen, uh, we at World Relief have been resettling refugees for many years. And so as you go around your neighbors and as you, uh, your neighborhood and as you meet your new neighbors, I don't think it's an accident that your favorite restaurant is a Thai restaurant or that your local dry cleaners is owned by Koreans or that you love visiting the local Mexican place that's down the street. I believe that this, this diversity is not just a gift for our palates because we'll experience amazing food, but it really is a gift for the body of Christ. Because in Revelation 7-9, it says that there will be every tape uh, tongue, nation, and culture worshiping before the throne of God. And if we here in Glen Ellen are able to experience a little bit of that diversity of people who are worshiping God from all cultures, despite our differences, coming under the common banner of Christ, I believe that is an incredible blessing and an opportunity for the local church. Uh, Dr. Timothy Tennant is the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, and he actually said this, he said 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christian or become Christian. That's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. This group that we want to keep out is actually the group we need the most for spiritual transformation. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. And I couldn't agree more. You know, oftentimes we here in the United States of America talk about immigration as a political issue or as a social issue or as an economic issue. And I think it is all of those things. But I believe we in the church, our response to this is ultimately a spiritual issue. And it really tests what we believe about the gospel itself. Are we willing to risk our own comfort and security to love our immigrant neighbors into the kingdom of God? And in the process of doing so, are we willing to be transformed in these relationships ourselves? Uh, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, where I have gotten to know some refugee families. And one individual, his name is Mustafa, he was a 21-year-old Syrian refugee whose high school was bombed out um, when he was there. Now, he fled into Turkey with his family and resettled into Baltimore, where I met him. And uh, he actually got a job at Whole Foods, and he loves it because not only does he get a decent wage, but he gets fed really amazing, healthy food. Um, and so he started collecting and using and saving his wages to actually be able to go to a local community college. 
And so when I met him, we had a conversation, and he said, you know, I grew up culturally Muslim, but I don't consider myself Muslim anymore because I can't not believe that my Allah would do this to my people of Syria. And so a local church community started coming around him and um, housing him, actually, and helping him be transported from his job to his home. And he started attending their local church. And actually, when I was speaking at the church, I didn't realize this, but he uh, started attending that church, and he was sitting in my session when I was talking about refugees, and he was actually able to share his story at the end. You know, stories like Mustafa remind us that even more than us giving something to refugees and our immigrant neighbors, we actually can receive more in blessing about understanding what God is doing around the world. And oftentimes, even as we think about migration changing the face of our country, it is, but I believe that migration is not just changing the face of our country, it is literally changing the face of Christianity. We have seen refugees come to know Christ, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and actually infuse life into churches that have welcomed them in Jesus' name. And we have actually seen these refugees and immigrants become an incredible blessing to the church just by being in relationship to them. Reconciling All Things is a book that I've read, and what they say, the authors, is that the justice of the Lord's table is not simply a punitive or retributive justice, but a far more radical form pursued within a vision of a costly communion to bring together what has been torn apart. What this reminds us is that oftentimes it's going to take risk to ourselves and even to our own comfort to enter into relationships with people that are different than us. But ultimately, I believe our enemy is not someone of a different religion or someone of a different race or ethnicity. Our ultimate enemy is fear because fear will cripple us from participating in the mission of God. But I believe if we as a church welcome and love the very people the world wants us to hate, that is when we will see miracles in our communities and when we will see God working amongst us to redeem all things for his glory and for his kingdom. If Jesus left all of his brokenness and suffering and his privilege, actually, to enter into our suffering, then I believe we as a church have a responsibility to enter into the brokenness of others. And we at World Relief have seen, as a church has done that, that there have been constant miracles and encouraging uh, experiences and actually redemptive things that God is doing through the migration of people. Just as an example, I actually want to close with a video of a church that has done this very thing. And I welcome you to journey with us as we uh, welcome our immigrant and refugee neighbors. Thank you. Twelve years ago, I stepped into a classroom at World Relief. A classroom full of preliterate learners. Individuals who are coming as refugees and immigrants from countries where there was no written language. I went in with a title teacher, but at the end of the day, in seeing the scars of genocide, physical burns, limbs that had been lost, the tears from families that had been lost, and the relentless hope of refugees and immigrants. They taught me much more than I ever taught them. There was one woman who was in my class and she had arrived shortly before I began teaching. And she was from Afghanistan. And one day her daughter was out playing 
and she happened to walk through an old minefield. And in a matter of seconds, she lost her leg. A few months later, the student, Nalem, was at the market with her daughter. And she returned home to find that the Taliban had blown up her home. And her husband and her sons were lost. And her daughter with one leg in Nalem with this terror that she had just seen fled over the mountains from Afghanistan into Pakistan on foot. And after years in a refugee camp, when they arrived in America, she thought she was being brought here as a slave. Can you believe that? But it was the love of a church family that wrapped around her and wrapped around her daughter that she realized that she wasn't heading into enslavement, but she was heading into a future of hope. It's a messy time in the world. But you know, the really great thing is we serve a God that is bigger. And we serve a God that has called you and has called me and has equipped us to be a light and a hope in the world. If you were moved by what you heard today, World Relief has many opportunities to serve, but we ask them to highlight for us some of their greatest needs. So if you're available and you want to volunteer to pick someone up from the airport and be the first hug, the first smile that they receive on American soil, I would encourage you to sign up to do that. If maybe you don't have a lot of time, but you're willing to drive someone to a doctor's appointment, I would encourage you to sign up to do that. If you have some margin in your week and you're willing to care for some little kids so their parents can take ESL classes, I would encourage you to sign up for that. And if you're here today and you go, man, my schedule's booked, I just don't know what to do, World Relief put together for us two pamphlets. This one, which is a directory of just a few local refugee and immigrant businesses. And you can show your support by ordering food and drinking tea from these businesses. They've also put together for us this, which is five ways to welcome. And it's simple ways in the context of your daily life that you can be aware of the refugee crisis and that you can serve the immigrant and the refugee in your neighborhood. And if you have more questions about this today after third service, we're holding a Q&A with Jenny and we've actually, will be supplying some food from local refugee and immigrant businesses. And that is upstairs on the second floor after third service. We serve a God who is a God of hope. So as we leave, I invite you to hold out your hands in a posture of receptivity. As disciples of Christ, we also follow the things that Jesus did in his life. 
And this morning I was moved by the words in which he kind of proclaims to the world what he's about. And if you recall, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he rolls out a scroll and he reads this from Isaiah. And his followers of Christ, this is our same mission too. So church, I pray over you. The spirit of the Lord is on you because he has anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent you to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have blessed us and you have called us and that you equip us. And in the world where there is fear, God, you strengthen us to lead with love. So as we leave these doors, God, empower us to be your church in the world, a voice of hope and love and mercy and grace for your glory, for your honor, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We will see you next week.